You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM in New Haven, Connecticut. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging into stories of food, radical love, and creative social justice. Today's show is an interview with Navina Kana, founding director of Heal Food Alliance. The Alliance works across sectors to build power to transform our food system so that it prioritizes people and the planet over profits. Their key partners include the Food Chain Workers Alliance, the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, the Union of Concerned Scientists, as well as Real Food Generation. They draw on representation from over 2 million rural and urban farm and food workers, as well as a wide range of players throughout the food system. I invited Navina to share details about their work and their ways of working for positive change. This interview was hosted by the Center for Business and the Environment at Yale, where I've been invited to serve as a resident fellow and facilitate conversations about power and race in community, business, and the environment. The conversation was recorded as a live public webinar and lightly edited for this podcast. Navina Kana is the founding director of HEAL where she leads this multi-sector and multi-racial coalition work. And I'm really honored that she's made time to speak with us about it today. Navina, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here with you. Thanks for having me, Tegan. Absolutely. So your work is big and (laughs) multi-layered and complex. Um, But I know that you have a theory of change that sort of guides the way that you do your work. And I wanted to invite you to start there and explain a little bit about what is this theory of change and how does it affect the way that you approach your work? Yeah. HEAL, like you already said, it's a multi-sector, multi-racial alliance of groups that are really coming together across race, across geography, across issue area that are rooted in a common set of values. Right. And part of what we understand together is that the current food system that we all have, that we're all existing in right now, is the way that it is because we have this mythology in our society that profit is more valuable than people or the plants. Right. And we understand that the destructive system really can only exist as long as we continue to put that profit over people on the planet. It's what drives all the extraction the exploitation that we've seen throughout history and that we continue to see today. So, you know, we ground what we're doing in that understanding and this valuing of life and the relationships that we hold as the most sacred thing. So that's kind of a fundamental. Um, But we think about our theory of change in kind of like five buckets. So the first premise being that. And then also recognizing that, you know, when we talk about the world that we want, which is one where all people have the right and the means to be in their full power without exploitation of anybody else or exploitation of any other living beings um, and have everything that they need in that way, that getting there is actually not politically possible right now. So we understand that our job as HEAL is to make that more politically possible, right? Make it so. And we know that There's no one single organization or one sector or one group of people that can do that alone or in isolation, right? That the challenge that we're up against right now is huge and that it's really going to take all of us. And so part of this idea of being an alliance is that we're really thinking about the different 
roles that each of us has, the relationships, the resources, the the skills, the the things that each of us can bring to the table. So we actually can make the scale of changes needed because it will take everyone to do that. And maybe most fundamentally in our conception of this is that we know that the people who made these systems be the way that they are, they don't have the solutions right. <laughs> of how to uh, get us out of here, right? So what we need to be looking to and who we need to be looking to are the folks who are most negatively impacted right now by the systems yeah. that we're in yeah. and really looking to that leadership. Um, so that's kind of like what grounds us. And then we you know, do our work in multiple arenas and multiple ways, but those threads that ground what we Yeah. Yeah, and I realize like it's important to put this in historical context also. Like this country is founded on stolen land and genocide and an agricultural economy based on slavery. And so in many ways, while it has morphed and changed over time, we still have an agricultural economy that is based on not paying people very much or not paying people what they're worth. And in some cases with like people in prisons who are growing food or producing food and migrant farm workers and other things, we in many ways haven't moved so far away from that. And then when we look at the global economy, we still have that going on as well. So this isn't a new, <laughs> sadly, horribly, this is not a new thing. Yeah, I appreciate your theory of change and, and this the layers of it, because I think it can be very daunting to think about how do you go up against huge corporations and and how do you actually like change all these elements of our food system that are really controlled by people with a lot of power and money and corporations and politicians with a lot of power and money. So could you give people an idea of all the elements that you're trying to change? You have a beautifully put together um, platform for real food. And I know that over 50 organizations came together and all of their members to kind of contribute to this. Can you share some information with people so they can understand the elements of the food system that you're trying to transform? Yeah. So one of the things that we've seen and a bunch of us were seeing that came together to form HEAL is that folks were really fighting in isolation. Workers had to fight for their own rights and dignity. And people who cared about organic were often you know, talking about that just in terms of personal health. People who really wanted sustainable agriculture for the sake of the environment weren't necessarily thinking about the whole economy and things like that. So part of our intention is recognizing together, like we're all being screwed by the same system. And, and, you know, like you said, like the number of people who are actually benefiting from the system is such a small handful of people, right? Like I saw some stat recently that said that, you know, the people who are actually benefiting from climate change being the way that it is, could all fit on two Greyhound buses, right? (laughs) Very few people are actually benefiting from the system. Um, So we know that we're, you know, trying to confront and dismantle this corporate control of our food system. These corporations control just like such a huge percentage of our food system, four or five corporations. And we know that we're, you know, working in this context of white supremacy and this legacy um, and the current reality of racism, as you named, right? So those are those are like kind of like the two premises of the things that we're trying to confront. Um, but we recognize that we're all up against that, right? As workers, as farmers, as health advocates, whomever, we're all up against that. And so part of the coming together to develop this platform and really bringing together organizations, folks who had experience and expertise in each of the different areas that are in our platform was to be able to say, not all of us can do all of the things that are in this platform, but we recognize that all of it needs to be done. And 
we recognize that your rights as a worker are as important as me getting paid enough as a farmer is as important as ensuring the biodiversity of our ecosystems for everyone to thrive and so on, so that we could actually do that together. And so what we ended up doing is putting together this 10 point platform that you're referring to, that we are all in agreement that we will uphold each other's issues and not throw each other under the bus when it comes to trying to, you know, advocate for any kind of policy changes or anything like that. And I actually, just to take it out of theory and into what we actually mean and what we're talking about, we'll just like show a slide. So these are the 10 planks of our platform. We have broken it out into economy, health, and environment. And of course, we know that uh, what undergirds all of this is community control, community decision-making, us having collective stewardship of the system and getting it, again, you know, out of the hands of those corporations and those greedy politicians that are benefiting from this um, and really into our own. But these are the 10 flanks. And so when we run through this, we're talking about things like, yeah, ensuring, ensuring dignity for workers and their families. And that includes everything from what you were just saying around incarcerated people to people having safe working places and the right to organize and reforming immigration laws in a ways that are sustainable for folks. I'm not going to run through all of these, but as you'll sure. see in here, even with um, this idea of providing opportunity for all producers, what we've seen historically is that one group of people, white people, white men specifically, 150 years ago, were basically you know, given free land that was indigenous people's land. Black folks were promised 40 acres in a mule. They never got that. And what we've seen throughout the establishment of this country and what continues today is that Black folks, Indigenous folks, other people of color don't get access to the same resources, even when they're trying to be in right relationship with the land and grow food for their communities. So um, ensuring that our institutions like the USDA and others are actually serving BIPOC producers and serving the public, right, instead of the right. private good. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we can go through the different planks of the platform, but really what they're all trying to do is get at this massive amount of corporate control that we have of our system with specific policy proposals that will help get us to the kind of food system that actually works for all people on the planet. Invest in regional local economies, ensures that people have access to affordable, healthy food, again, have the right and the means for it. Yeah. transparency and accountability and so on and so forth. Right. Yeah. And I guess just so people can understand um, in a, in a simple way, it's broken into three parts. There's kind of a number of, of recommendations under the economy, a number under health and a number under the environment. And they kind of address specific things um, within that. So you can go to our website to see the whole thing. Yeah. It's very easy to digest, but I wanted to come back to this kind of core piece that is central to your work, which is that the work is directed by people who work in food, right? People who are farm workers, food workers, and work in other aspects of the food system. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about, I know you've said it a little already, but I just want to like emphasize this because even though people might understand it sort of in theory, it really doesn't happen right now. People who are workers do not actually get to have a lot of input into decision-making and how things happen, how things run. And I would love to hear you explain a little bit why that is so vital and why that is so important. Yeah. And I, I think you named some of that already, right? <laughs> that the, the roots of our food system here in the U.S., it, they, they really are rooted in stolen land, stolen labor, stolen lives. And while that was chattel slavery for a number of years. What we saw happen when the big policies that govern our current food system were drafted is that they excluded the people who held jobs that had been 
work that had been done by formerly enslaved people, right? So the Fair Labor Standards Act that determines that we have a 40-hour work week and that there's minimum wage and things like that, that excluded farm workers, for example. Right. Um, it also included, excluded domestic workers and other folks too. But at the core, what we see over and over again is that the right for companies, for corporations to profit, the right for consumers to have access to food, we collectively as a society keep prioritizing that over the health and well-being and lives and livelihoods of the people who are actually working in our food mm-hmm. system. And if you, if you look across this country, I mean, pre-pandemic, there were 21.5 million people that worked in our food system. So that's like the biggest sector in our whole economy. But it's also where five of the eight worst paying jobs are. And it's where people were even more dependent. I'm using were because I don't actually know the numbers during pandemic. And I know that there's been a bunch of um, yeah, people have been contract work and things like that right. that's really shifted. But but people were one and a half times more likely to need government assistance, things like food stamps and things like that, if they worked in food. So you get counties like Fresno County, you know, here in California, where I live, where we're growing the most fruits and vegetables in the country, feeding the whole country, but people, they also have the highest rates of food insecurity, right? People don't have access to enough food for their own communities. So Part of what is critical, again, is this idea that like, if we are going to have a food and agriculture system that actually works for people, then it's going to be because the people who, again, are being most screwed over right now are the ones who are saying what is needed and what has to change. So if, for example, we're saying that we don't want you know, pesticides on our food anymore, like who's most impacted right now by pesticides is the people who are actually spraying them. Right. Right. And who live in neighboring communities. So what if those folks who don't want to be spraying pesticides, don't want to be sprayed by them, don't want their kids to have birth defects, like if they had the right to organize and to speak out and weren't vulnerable to um, ICE or job loss or anything else, uh, if they had the right to do that and the ability to do that and were supported in doing that, it could look tremendously different for everyone. Right? We would all benefit. Right. Um, we benefit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um it's such a huge thing because, you know, we have all these labels that say organic or certified humane or these things about how animals are treated, how food are treated. We don't have very many labels, almost at all, that talk about how workers are treated. And I think um, it is something that's really missing, making visible kind of how workers are treated is something that's really hidden um, in our society. And I appreciate the work you're doing because you're trying to undo that and, and that others are doing there are workers organizing themselves, you know, to right. make sure that they are the ones drafting the standards, you know, for the right. labels and holding folks accountable. And if folks want to learn more about that, I really recommend checking out the Coalition of Immokalee Workers and the Fair yeah. Standards um, and the work that they've been doing on that. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how some of the multi-sector organizing works. Like, so people who didn't formally talk to each other, maybe the workers who need support in organizing and then people who are fighting for, you know, as you said, like organic labeling or other things. Can you describe a little just how you've, maybe in very concrete ways, like how have you gotten people talking to each other and and then collaborating on campaigns or on policies or, or other things? Yeah, I will say first that, you know, we're not the big tent, right? Like <laughs> folks who join HEAL join because they are aligned in values and aligned in vision. And there are plenty of coalitions or networks or things like that out there where it's just like, oh yeah, we care about food. And we're all you know, here. We're not that. Folks that are joining HEAL are committing 
to doing that work together and doing the deep work to understand each other's issues. And they want to work in solidarity with each mm-hmm. other, right? That doesn't mean that everyone necessarily understands all of each other's issues or how to work best with each other, but the folks are committed to it. And so we literally, like one of our, we talk about our work in terms of like five core methods of what we do. One of our core methods is that we are connecting and uniting folks together. So that means IRL, before we were all in virtual worlds, bringing folks together in a room to be in conversation with each other. So we started this whole process by bringing folks from base building groups who, that means that they you know, are organizing with people in community, with the people most impacted in community together into a room to talk about, you know, what is our shared vision? What are we working towards? And then what are the shared values that move us towards that? And then let's talk about what's the strategy? What are the steps that we need to take to get from where we are right now in a way that matches our values that leads us towards our vision? And when we first started bringing folks together, it's actually, you know, a pretty transformative process for folks to be able to be in that and find that commonality because so much of what has been called the food movement and has been, you know, the the dominant voices in the so-called food movement have been mostly white voices, mostly male voices, a lot of academics and authors and things like that. And so to bring folks together to, to be in that was, was valuable. And it was through that, that folks, you know, named, you know, we stop talking to each other about this stuff and let's actually start working on some campaigns together. Um, So we started in that conversation around strategy thinking about like, what are some campaigns that we, could win on together? And what are some campaigns that would move us towards more structural change? So for example, we're all agreed from the outset that if we're really gonna address corporate control in our food system, we need stronger antitrust laws that will actually make sure that there's no more of these mergers and monopolies and things like that. We need them enforced. We need to, you know, break up that whole system. We knew we were not going to be able to do that right, <laughs> overnight. Right. It's not politically possible. But what's the campaign that a bunch of groups have a stake in and could work on together to start building our momentum towards that while actually winning substantive change for their communities? So, for example, some of our members from the Northwest Atlantic Marine Alliance, so they work with fishers and a couple of farming groups like Operation Spring Plant, um, so black farmers in North Carolina, um, students who are on campuses around the country, organized through Real Food Generation and Fair World Project that was working on standards for workers and, and a handful of other organizations, ASPCA and others came together saying, you know, we could work together on targeting three corporations that really hold a bunch of the food industry in their pocket. They have a stranglehold on it, three food service corporations mm. and then starting to organize together to around a set of demands. And I think the first, you know, comprehensive set of demands that gets at labor standards, environmental standards, animal welfare standards, tries to increase contracts for BIPOC producers, um, kind of like has that whole gamut together. Right. That everyone's going to throw in on these demands, hold these corporations accountable to that, build our muscle and momentum together and, and, you know, learn how to run that kind of campaign um, as a coalition of folks that might not have come together in this way before. And what happened with that, that campaign? Have we're, we're working on it. You're in it. Is that the, what is the name of that? That's the, the Real Meals campaign. The Real Meals. Okay. Yeah. So we just had um, a victory on that. We just got a secured a commitment from one of those corporations publicly. Hopefully the others will come along soon, but um, Aramark just committed to not ever selling any genetically 
modified salmon. And they're also working with us on securing contracts with some BIPOC producers mm-hmm. um, at some of their institutions. So we're, we're on our way <laughs> on that campaign and we have a long ways to go to really you know, transform things. Yeah. I mean, it's not a simple thing to even just finding BIPOC producers that can sell at the scale that these huge corporations need. Like there's so many elements that need to be built up to support all of that functioning, but getting them on board to say they'll do it is good. And I worked in Yale dining actually many years ago when they were right in the moment where Aramark was being kicked out. (laughs) So I experienced it there. And I also worked with New Haven public schools in a moment where Aramark was being kicked out. And so have really experienced sort of the differences between food service, labor standards, other things in, in both of those institutional environments environments around that. It's a big deal to get that kind of change in an institution of that size. Like it's very big business, you know, and so getting people on board and all the logistics they need to make those kinds of changes is right. not a small thing. Yeah. And the thing that we learned from, you know, one of our member organizations trying to do it on every college campus, like one campus at a time, is like they actually, there's a stranglehold, right? So we need right. to go to the companies themselves and then who they're sourcing from downstream and yeah, the kickbacks that they have in place and things like that. Right. But then the impact that you can have when you hit something at that level is huge. So if you get a change on salmon on like one ingredient, but at such a huge scale, figuring out how much work it takes to make all the little changes at a small scale versus like one big change at a time at a larger scale can really can actually have an impact. Um, I think just one other thing that I wanted to say around the, you know, you were asking, like, how do we do it? I think one of the things that we understand and like why we do the work this way is that all movement is rooted in relationship. Right. So really striving to like build strong relationships, sometimes through the work that we're doing, but also through learning about what each other are doing, how we do it, being in community together, having. So, for example, we run like school political leadership and that's where I'm just coming from today. We just had a session with our school. But normally, yeah, please tell people a little what that is, like people yeah. apply and. Yeah, folks apply, teams apply to learn skills in campaign strategy and power mapping and policy advocacy and things like that. But when we're able to do that in person, what we're doing is we're going into a community that we have a relationship with and we're learning from organizers who have been organizing that community for a long time. And we're maybe doing a work day together and building skills simultaneously, but really rooting in that shared political analysis together, building the relationships and, and starting from that place so that the the change that we make is really transformative, not just Mm -hmm. transitional. Can you share a little bit? I love getting into sort of the people hearing and understanding some of the actual practices. So like if you're teaching people about campaign work and like going out and building relationship with people and listening, like is there like one or two practices or skills that you teach that you think would be valuable for people to to hear about to just understand kind of how to how to do things that not just imposing on people right from the top down, but but what that means in practice, building relationship and, and that kind of listening. Yeah. So um, I think one of the, and this is so fundamental, but really just like doing what's traditionally an organizing called a one-to-one where we literally, you know, either pick up the phone or get together in person and have a genuine conversation with someone around the issues that matter to each of us and what our shared stake is in creating change so that we can come together around, you know, whatever our shared, not only our shared issue and stake, but also, you know, shared targets, right? So when we talk about the targets, we're talking about like who actually has the power and ability to change the circumstance for us. And so um, how do we 
build together enough that we can hold those targets accountable. Mm-hmm. So then one other like hard skill that we talk about um, and that we try to build is, is how to do power mapping, right? So how to look at like who actually, and again, maybe they just fit on those two Greyhound buses, <laughs> but who actually is benefiting from the system the way it is and who has the power to make decisions around where resources are flowing. So, you know, on a very local level, that might just be, you know, your city council is the one that can make the decision around whether or not your community, for example, has a climate action plan and is going to do something that includes food and agriculture systems. And if that's the case, then like, who can you build with that can then build with the next person that can then make sure that you have a substantial meeting with your council person that you're building their momentum together, getting them in a conversation is really about relational organizing mm-hmm. so that we're um, you know, looking at the whole system together. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Are there other campaigns that you want to share about to help people understand just some of the ways that you're trying to make this change and and maybe in particular around COVID and the way that COVID has affected food workers, just so people can understand sort of the avenues that you're going through to try to affect this change across the system. Yeah. So um, maybe one thing I'll say is that, you know, HEAL as an alliance runs some campaigns together. For example, the Real Mills campaign that we talked about or a program like the School of Political Leadership that we run. Um, And then there's things that our members are leading on and that as a movement infrastructure, we really strive to support and to amplify and to build further relationships around. For example, some of our member organizations like Venceremos in Arkansas, Rural Community Workers Alliance in Missouri, Idaho Organization of Resource Councils in Idaho, of course. Um, They are all in places where there are huge meatpacking plants. And they have been working with workers in those meatpacking plants for many, many years and have real relationships because even though COVID-19 really illuminated for so many people that we have a food system and that food workers are essential workers and all of that. Like the, as we've talked about already, like none of this is new, right? People have been exploited since the beginning of our food system. So folks have been doing that work and deep work in community for a long time. And one of the things that they were finding off the bat is that the workers that they organized with were not getting access to personal protective equipment. They were being forced to stand shoulder to shoulder. They were being told that they couldn't take sick days, even if somebody at the plant, you know, clearly had COVID, um, that they thought that they were exposed or that they might even have it, you know, that they need to stay home. They were being penalized for that kind of thing. So really through the leadership of those members who are rooted in community, um, we've been working, for example, for this past year to amplify that and to fight for protections for workers. And I just want to name that, you know, we talked in the beginning around like the vision and these values and all of these things of like what we're striving towards, what that literally has meant this last year is being like in defense mode, right? <laughs> Trying to just make sure that folks have basic protections and they still don't, right? We're still, right. We're still fighting for those. Um, yeah. We're hoping that in these next couple of weeks, we'll see something change. Um, there's a new bill being introduced next week around slowing down the line speeds at these processing plants. But what we saw this last year is that the federal government, you know, put out this executive order that was written by the companies saying that the plant's, should stay open and that they were not liable for anything that happened to their workers. And mm-hmm. as a result, we've seen tens of thousands of workers be exposed to COVID. And of course, the surrounding communities have been some of the major hotspots in the country. Right. Yeah. 
Can you talk about in that a little bit? Like, so we have OSHA, right? That's supposed to oversee working conditions. And there's, this is like a federal office and has standards. And can you explain like, why is this not happening in our meatpacking plants? And why is it not a simpler thing to just say, make sure OSHA is doing its job? Yeah. So OSHA actually does not have an emergency temporary standard around or any oh, around COVID. Okay. A respiratory disease. Okay. And Congress has to authorize or mandate that OSHA do that. And given the political context that we've been in this last year, the last four years, that wasn't going to happen. It didn't right. happen. So what, one of the things we've been trying to push for is for OSHA to develop that standard. And thankfully, this new administration did issue an executive order within within the first couple of days of being in office that directs OSHA to identify whether or not a standard is needed. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, ridiculous. Uh, we're still hoping that they will you know, say that it is and they will listen to workers. Because I think one of the big things that's happening, it's not just that you know, OSHA doesn't have that, but also because of the many, many reasons why workers are so vulnerable because of you know, our immigration standards and systemic racism and threats of job loss and things like that too. Workers can't necessarily speak out all the time without fear of retaliation. They have been. They've been walking off the job. They've been striking. They've been doing a bunch of things. And actually, one of our members and co-founders, the Food Chain Workers Alliance, just put out a report that came out yesterday that documents tremendous stories from their members, our members who have been organizing around the country in the face of COVID. Um, that's really worth people checking out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've noticed a lot, actually, the amount of um, organizations that support food workers are getting out a lot of individual stories, I think, to try to get people to understand, like, these are human beings and how they're being treated to make this, like, visible. And I, you know, before COVID, OSHA was not overseeing things that they're mandated to oversee even. So um, even outside of a respiratory illness. So, yeah, I encourage people to check that out. Are there other campaigns you want to share about or get people aware of and involved in? Yeah, so there's so much. And I just really, I encourage folks to go to our website to learn more. But um, one other just campaign that we're working on is a community level campaign called Good Food Communities. That's similar to the Real Mills campaign in that it is about standards for procurement. But the purpose of this campaign is to get all public dollars spent on food, whether that's in schools, hospitals, prisons, you know, wherever, daycare mm-hmm. centers, um, that those are public dollars can only go towards companies that are actually complying with basic labor standards and environmental standards and so on. Uh, so we call that good food communities. And it's something that has folks have passed here in Oakland, um, something similar in LA, Boston, Chicago, folks are working on it in Buffalo. So basically in you know cities around the country, counties around the country, people are working on it. But there's room for for more mm-hmm. um, if people want to do that in their own communities. We've been able to move um, several hundred millions of dollars away from really bad actors through that. And our work now is to try to make sure that that gets invested in the right places. Yeah, that's great. I think you maybe answered this a little, but I, from an organizing standpoint and a movement standpoint, I'm, I was wondering how you would respond to this question about... How do you keep focused and prioritize so that you can be effective in your work and and not just get spread too thin in in your organizing? Yeah. Um, Me personally or 
I guess as an organization is what I was thinking, but you can certainly yeah. answer um, it personally. No, let's talk about it as an organization. I think one of the key things is really just knowing our role, right? Knowing like what is not being done by anyone else that we really need to do. Mm-hmm. And to really know the roles, for example, of our members, right? And to make any assessment about whether or not we're going to take something on as like, is this actually necessary? Will this actually like move us closer towards our vision? Will this actually like have tangible benefits for people who are most negatively impacted right now? Uh, We ask ourselves questions as like, are our members actually interested in this thing? Is it something that like they are leading on that we can support? Mm. Um, And really to know, you know, if there's somebody else that's already doing it, like, how can we just be supportive of what other folks are doing? And then if not, like, what are the ways that we need to push or do something else? Um, yeah. And I think one of the, you know, one of the things we've really seen in this last year is just how much HEAL as a BIPOC-led, multiracial, multi-sector alliance is actually necessary in this space, in large part because of the relationships that we've built, right? Um, because of that, we've been able to, like, pivot and adapt and move together, even in the face of COVID, because of those relationships that we've built and be able to take action together because of that. And because of that, a lot of other groups that don't have those like rooted relationships have turned to us for to inform, you know, their policy advocacy and things mm. like that too. Mm. Um, yeah. That's but great. if someone's already doing it, like great, do that. <laughs> we don't we don't need to be duplicative. Yeah, and I and I appreciate also that, you know, you I think part of the strength of doing coalition work is, as you said, there's things that you're running and then there's things that you're partnering with other people on. And I think we live in such a culture of of like people wanting to have attention, kind of being famous for something or individualism. And I think that there's so much power in working in coalition and as you said, sort of knowing where your skill sets are and then where you can step into partner with other people. And I find myself encouraging people, like as I get older and people come and ask me advice about things, I often find myself saying like, who's doing what you want to do and and how can you join them, especially if it is black, indigenous or people of color led, especially for white folks or even just young folks, like you don't have to start something from zero. Like how can you support what's out there already? And then how can you build on it, right? Like if you want to join something like a campaign you're doing, but then as you build relationship and listening, you find out, well, you're needing support on communications and social media, or you are really needing more grassroots on the ground organizers to go talk to workers or, you know, and, and kind of starting from that place rather than starting something new all the time. And I think just joining in coalition and being able to have an impact at a larger level, because we tend to have this approach of like, for years in this country that people can just vote with their dollars, like as individuals, you know, kind of what we buy. And while that can have some impact, when you look at the scale of what we need to change, um, trying to figure out how can you have an impact at purchasing that goes, you know, across dozens of institutions or that affects things at a much, much larger level or that isn't about purchasing at all. That's about making policy changes or other systemic changes and those kinds of things. You need to be in coalition. You need to be working um, at a larger level. So I really appreciate the way that you do that, both the coalitions that you run as well as as the things that you join into, I think is important. Yeah. And it's, it's both, right. It's like the scale of change that we're trying to make, like you said, can only happen through mass movement and mass action. And there just isn't room for ego. Like nobody actually has time (laughs) to do every single thing. We are all going to burn out. if We try to do every single thing. And 
really just like trusting each other to take action when, when it's needed is part of this whole thing too, right? It's like, even when I think about, you know, in my own community and showing up to like protests or action or things like that, like I can't go to every single one and that's okay, right? There's enough of us and we trust each other enough, but like someone else can go to this one and I'll go on Saturday. And, right. You know, <laughs> um, that's why it's so important, I think, to find a political home, right? For like something like Heal is a political home for many folks. And in our own communities, we find political home too, mm-hmm. right? um, that we can move together. Yeah, there's a, a question here asking, is Heal partnering with any organizations in the Hudson Valley or of New York State? Yeah, some of our members are based in the Hudson Valley, like, for example, Soul Fire Farm, uh, who many people are familiar with. It's in Hudson Valley. Um, and then there are several statewide organizations in New York that we work with. Um, so, for example, Rural Migrant Ministry is in New York and the Worker Justice Center um, a bunch of other groups. You can not to just keep directing people to our website, but on our website, we have a map of our members um, and folks can check out our, our members and where they're based. And there's a bunch of New York. Yeah. You have an amazing website. Clearly like somebody loves writing and designing and <laughs> organizing information. It's really, um, I really encourage people to go check it out. You can learn a ton from, from reading the different materials. Yeah. Uh, we have a brilliant communications team. Awesome. I was curious if you could speak about, you know, in this moment where there's a rising awareness among white folks and around some people in positions of power around systemic racism, I'm wondering if you're seeing any changes in white-led organizations in terms of their pivoting or being able to follow rather than lead or any other kinds of things about how they're partnering with you or partnering with other BIPOC-led groups and efforts? Yeah, I'm seeing, I'm seeing some, obviously, like an organization is made up of individuals, right? And I think that what's particularly in this last year with the uprising and the real, you know, like reckoning that... I think this country is having with race. We're seeing folks start to get out of their silos a little bit and start to take action for each other. For example, an organization like Friends of the Earth, who's not a member of HEAL, but is one of our partners and who historically has primarily done strict environmental work and animal rights work. They've been amazing partners this last year in the fight for essential worker protections. And they've really thrown down and Uh, mobilize their resources to action. And I think we're seeing more and more of that kind of thing where, again, organizations that didn't before think about worker issues or black farmer issues or whatever they, you know, whatever they're able to like say like, oh, that's not our thing. Like are starting to say like, oh, we actually can talk about that too. National Farmers Union has been putting out statements about racial justice a lot, right? And calling out a lot of things. So I think on the one hand, we're, we're seeing a shift and we're seeing organizations trying to grow and trying to work together. I think that in the scheme of who we celebrate, who we lift up, particularly who we invest in, I think that that's where we're still looking for a lot more change, you know, from philanthropy, from funders, yeah. from folks who have the resources. Because if you look at any significant change that's happened through history, it's grassroots groups, it's frontline groups that have been leading that change and who are 
whether or not they're funded to do it or going to do what's needed in their community. And that's what, you know, we've been seeing through COVID and we've seen through climate chaos, like folks just throw down in their own communities. And, you know, people have done this mapping, for example, of the environmental movement, seeing that like 95% of funding in an environmental movement has gone towards white-led organizations. And that's the big, the big, the greens. Um, But nearly every win that's happened has, um, been because of a grassroots frontline organization. Which is mostly Black, Brown, and Indigenous people who are doing the work and organizing and the people who are most impacted by That's right. the harms. Yeah. Right. So, so imagine if that 95% or even 50% of that funding went towards those groups, Right. Uh, what they could do. Yeah. And that's so important. I'm glad you said that because I think, you know, it is sort of a thing right now, people making statements, but what's really important is the actions that people take to to do something about systemic racism and do something differently, whether it's partnering or whether it's getting resources and funding or other things to. That's also just talking about like the nonprofit world, right? We're not even talking about like (laughs) the business world. Pepsi Pepsi made a statement, right? Right. Pepsi is still, you know, targeting black youth in particular and messing up people's health for the long haul. Yeah. um, Significant ways. And they're getting away with it. Yeah. There's a question here about what is Heal's relationship to organizing around abolition and against the prison industrial complex? Not sure if that's too much mission creep, but it seems this is this person writing, but it seems like fighting against criminalization would be central to food justice, like what you said about ICE and farm workers. What would that mean for working with organizations like Aramark who profit from public prison contracts? Is abolition among your demands? And thanks for doing this talk. Yeah. Yeah, great question. Uh, yeah, we actually, a couple years ago, started a full exploration of the corporations, particularly food corporations that are benefiting from not just prison labor, but also the ways that they are. So there's there's a couple pieces of this. One is that people who are incarcerated can be put to work um, and right. can be put to work at like really, really low wages if paid at all. And that's often on penal farms, right? Or, or it's for like food, even for high-end companies, right? right. So like making like craft cheeses and things like that and getting paid like 29 cents an hour. Um, So we started mapping out not only where those prisons are that are using that kind of labor, but also like who are the corporations that are benefiting from this and really trying to draw out some of those connections between the prison industrial complex and the food system being the way that it is. Yes, to being an abolitionist group, we would like to see an end (laughs) to the prison industrial complex in all forms and real work towards restorative justice in all of our communities. And I think that there is like much, much more work for all of us to do together to really draw that out and to make the kinds of changes that we want. So for example, like Aramark profiting from the prison industry, Aramark also is a food service in prisons. And what that looks like is that folks who are incarcerated are like literally the ones making the meals for themselves and like really crappy food. Impact Justice just put out a, a great report this last year that I'm hoping will be informative for all of our organizing work around the food service industry and the prison industrial complex and the really low quality of food and things like that, that folks are served. So everything that we're talking about in terms of not only the ways that like labor and food service and things like that are upheld in our food system, but also when you start breaking it down to how population is being tracked, right? And so like part of what we're always thinking about is how are we like 
bridging the urban-rural divide and thinking about how folks are represented in governance and things like that in their area. And one of the things that is happening is that a large number of prisons, particularly private prisons, are being placed in rural areas. And so we're just like furthering that divide in so many ways. And when we're thinking about like, what does it mean to support, you know, rural communities and the kinds of changes, like there's some deep examination and exposure, I think, that's needed there. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad that that question was asked. It's really, really important. We're coming to the end of our time. I'm wondering if there's any other, do you want to just share like how people can get engaged if they want to help? Sure. Um, Heal itself is made up of organizations. A lot of those organizations are local organizations. So encourage folks to check out orgs that are in your area or communities. And we're always looking for help with things like developing infographics and um, doing more communications about the issues that really matter to our members. Website is where you can find most of our information and feel free to drop us a line um, if there's specific ways that you want to get engaged to. Great. Great. Thank you so much for your time. I mean, thank you for all the work you're doing and thank you for taking this time to explain it and answer some questions about it. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me, Tegan. For more info on this show and many past episodes, go to thetableunderground.com. This episode was edited by John Oliver Music. And many thanks to Navina for her time, as well as the team at the Center for Business and the Environment at Yale, including Amy Badner, Heather Fitzgerald, and Stuart Deku for their help and support in making this interview possible. I'm Tegan Engel, and this is The Table Underground. Thanks for listening.